listening to just one of the guys, where my voice is slowly coming back, probably much to the dismay of my wife. voiced episode just one of the guys a green lantern podcast this as always is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you the coverage of the green lantern comics from cover date june 1990 until cover date november 2004 with a special emphasis on the characters of guy gardner and kyle rayner luckily the two people who we're going to be talking about in this episode and by talking i mean barely getting through it because i've got a horrible horrible case of laryngitis but I've devoted myself to getting out an episode of these week, and I'm planning on doing it regardless of how bad I sound, which probably doesn't work out so well for you as the listeners. But what will work out well is the fact that we're going to be covering a couple of great issues of Green Lantern and Guy Gardner. Green Lantern number 52 uh, deals with a little bit of backstory that Green Lantern dealt with in episode number 46. He's having to take on Mongol. Unfortunately, Mongol, who has a mad hunt for Green Lantern, doesn't realize this is an entirely different one. And Kyle may just be a little bit over his head dealing with the jaundiced giant. And speaking of yellow, we've got Guy Gardner in his very yellow, very 90s armor, taking on the not-yet-named enemy that Hal Jordan has become, well, we all know who it is. He mentions it like every five minutes whenever you talk to him in the new 52. But it's an epic battle between Guy and Hal, and unfortunately, as things work out, things don't work out well for Guy. But we'll be getting to all of that here in a couple of minutes after I play a couple of promos for some excellent podcasts of people who don't have voices that sound like they've been gargling with tequila and broken glass. But go ahead and listen to the podcast promos, and then when we get back, I will do my best to give you email reads, which I need to catch up on as well, as well as the coverage of these two fantastic books. Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain? We violate the treaty, Captain. Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you scratching at? 
humans make illogical decisions. every episode of the classic original TV series in randomly selected order on the second Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman, Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, The Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, The New 52 Adventures of Superman, Superman Forever Radio, I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Kara's World Podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The World's Best Podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back. So before we get to the coverage of the comics this time around, I have been remiss in reading your folks' wonderful email that you've sent to me. Well, not really remiss. I mean, I had a couple episodes in the can that I recorded with Michael Bailey and Thomas TJ, so that basically covered for this time that I was really without a voice. But I definitely need to get to them on the show. So let's go ahead and open up the just one of the guys' mailbag. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and our first letter this time comes from Mr. Ben Perlman, and he writes in saying, Mr. Ingle, hello and a happy belated new year to you. I've written in to you before, and since life kept getting in the way of my ability to listen to your wonderful podcast, well, thank you, Ben. I'm sorry to disappoint you with this one where I sound like crap. Uh, continue on. He says, I fell far behind. I left off by episode 36. Be thankful because issue 37 was not the best one around. Ben continues, Now that I've caught up, I wanted to write in again and let you know how much I enjoy your podcast and your insights into each issue you review, which gives me the feeling of reading them again for the first time. Well, thanks, Ben. I really appreciate that. I'm glad that I'm getting this feedback that, you know, people feel this way about me talking about it, despite the fact that my talking will probably cause, you know, ear damage this time. Ben continues on. He says, I'd like to get your opinion on an issue that's been bothering me and give my two cents on something that you mentioned in your past podcast. First, my two cents. During the third law storyline, as I said, I fell behind, it sounded like you couldn't understand how the central power battery could work if it was placed on a yellow platform on Oa. My understanding is that yellow only affects the power beam ring but not the physical ring or the battery itself. As long as the beam can, as long as the beam can escape, it will work. Then he quotes spoilers, although this is a moot point once events in GL50 occur. And since we've already gotten to that, I think we know about that. But yeah, it just bugged me, uh, the whole idea that the planet Oa had so much of its building and so much of its infrastructure essentially colored yellow. If someone were to attack the Green Lantern Corps on Oa, all they'd have to do is smash them into one of the buildings and topple the building on top of them. Boom. They're dead. Green Lantern Ring can't can't uh, lift them out of it. Green Lantern Ring can't put up a shield that'll uh, 
keep the weight of the building off of them. It's just not a smart idea to have the main weakness be the color of all the structures on the planet. I guess that's kind of what I was railing against. Maybe it's just an art choice on their, the behalf of the artist at the time, but it just kind of irked me. But I understand what you're getting at, Ben. Ben's letter continues. Now my issue. When did Hal Jordan become so distraught about Coast City? I know that the loss would have affected him, as it should, but in some of his appearances since Coast City was destroyed, GL 46, 47, and even in Superman number 83, Funeral for a Friend epilogue, he didn't appear, he didn't appear as crazed as he does in GL 48. Did I miss something? No, you didn't miss anything. What was actually missing is something we touched on in the past couple of issues when I talked with Thomas T.J. and Michael Bailey. Basically, there was a whole storyline that was set out that was going to deal with Hal and the Guardians in a different way than what happened in Emerald Twilight. Essentially, Ron Mars was brought in to write this story where Hal goes nuts and basically turns into Parallax. We'll get to that later. But uh, if you listen to the uh, previous episodes, basically what was going to happen was Hal was going to lead a group of lanterns against these supposedly faux guardians who were trying to take over. And there was sort of a schism between them, and it would eventually lead to a renewed and refigurated core. Unfortunately, that plot line Gerard Jones had you know, scripted out was thrown to the wayside for this idea of you know, the death of Hal Jordan and Zero Hour and everything that came from that. That's probably why, in issue 47, Hal is pretty much okay with the death of Ghost City. I mean, he's broken up, but he's not manic over it. Ben finally continues, I was also wondering, have you given any thought to how you'll be coming in Guy Gardner once his comic ends, since you're almost halfway through the run? Well, I'm not going to be covering the current stuff. My uh, idea behind this uh, series was basically to cover the stuff from the Green Lantern, the beginning of Green Lantern in the 90s, up until the reboot with Green Lantern Rebirth. Um, I may start covering some uh, Guy Gardner annuals. There's a couple of those. Uh, I'll probably also start looking back at the uh, Green Lantern quarterly books. Uh, the Green Lantern Corps quarterly books were coming out at this time. Plus, if there's any incidental stuff, uh, the annuals and stuff on Green Lantern, I'll be covering that. But as for specific Guy Gardner stuff uh, in the current publishing, probably won't be covering that. Ben finishes up saying, Thank you for listening to me rant, and sorry about the link to the email. Congratulations on reaching episode 50, and here's to many, many more. Keep up the wonderful work, and here comes Kyle, Ben Perlman. Well, thanks, Ben. I'm hoping you're enjoying the, the issues so far and the episodes. Uh, I'm really glad that we've gotten to the Kyle era. He's one of my favorite lanterns. Uh, he's a really interesting character, and I'm loving the fact that I'm getting to cover his his beginnings, the way he's starting out, and how he grows in us a little lantern. I can't wait to get to some stories in the future, and it's really fun covering now. But thanks for writing in. Our next email is uh, entitled Episode 49 and comes from Charlie Niemeyer, host of Superman and the Bronze Days, also host of the newly formed uh, Charlie's Geek Cast. Uh, a couple episodes ago, he was covering Transformers, and I don't know what he's going to be covering next. The Transformers episode was epic, though, and it actually had a good friend of the show, Dave Walker, from Flash Legacies on it. Uh, he's also guest-starring on the uh, New 52 Adventures of Superman, uh, which is covering the Hell on Earth storyline. Go check all those podcasts out. Definitely good stuff. Charlie writes in to say, Hey, Sean. First of all, I wanted to let you know that the artwork from that Titans AIDS PSA is by Tom Grummet. Makes sense. And I believe with Al Vey Inks, as they were the art team on one of the Titans books at the time. Cool. Uh, I told Charlie I'm not really up on my artist, and if it's not specific stuff that I don't own, I couldn't tell a Grummet from uh, Burn from, well, pretty much anyone. A knowing artist really isn't my forte, so I appreciate Charlie writing in and letting me know about that. Charlie continues, second, you've finally gotten to the stuff I've read before. I can definitely see why so many Hal Jordan fans got upset over his portrayal in issues 48 through 50. 
It does seem like a change from his character does come out of left field after the previous few years. But then again, who knows what would really happen to someone who's lost his entire hometown, which you've been protecting for the better part of a decade, based on DC's sliding timeline, is completely destroyed, destroyed while he, she, was on a mission off-planet. I'm really looking forward to your coverage of Kyle's run on the book, though. While Hal was my first Yale due to super friends, as probably he was for most of us, Charlie, Kyle is the GL I basically grew up with. Well, if you count the age 14 to 24 as growing up. Yeah, it's it's growing up for me, too. I was a little bit older, and Kyle's, Kyle's the GL that I identify with a lot as well. Charlie continues, As for Guy, we're getting into more of the stuff that I know more about. Although his look is very 90s, oh, sorry, although his very 90s look is just nuts. I may have mentioned this before, but I haven't read much of Kai's book, but I'm still enjoying your coverage of it. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that people who at least have a knowledge of Guy but never read the book are at least getting some enjoyment out of uh, what I'm telling you about the book. Because, to be honest, the Guy Gardner book, especially the Guy Gardner Warrior book under Bo Smith, is just a lot of fun. And if I can get people into possibly uh, going buying the back issues or even maybe bugging DC into putting out a showcase edition of Bo's work, that would be awesome. Back to the email, Charlie says, By the way, I believe you're right around your one-year anniversary. Congrats to you. And you made it all the way without missing a week. That is phenomenal. Also, congrats on your award. Yep, I don't really like to tout that, but yes, a couple of... uh, well, about a month ago now, uh, Professor Allen awarded me with the uh, Best New Podcast of 2012 award, and I'm still reeling about how awesome that is. Uh, uh, thank you, Charlie, for mentioning that, and thank you for the well wishes of the uh, one-year anniversary. You know, I'm not really big on celebrating anniversaries, which I'm certain my wife will really hate, because I need to remember that one coming up in August, but I appreciate the sentiment nonetheless. Thank you very much, Charlie, and Definitely go check out Charlie's shows. GeekCast has been really fun so far. The next letter comes from Jay Ferguson, and it's titled A New Promo. And Jay writes, Glad you're still keeping it up, which could be misconstrued. And he says, I'm still loving this show. Don't really have much to say about the stuff at the moment, though I'm loving it as always. I haven't listened to the most recent yet, but I can't wait. The Trinity episodes were great. Legion is one of the best team books that there's ever been, and Vril Docs makes everything better. I can't agree with you more. Uh, the Dark Stars are pretty terrible. Take your word for it. The best thing I can say about them is that Kate Spencer Manhunter used a Dark Star suit as part of her costume, and that her series was pretty awesome. But what I did want to say is that I sh- that should you change your mind about doing a US One podcast, I would co-host that in a second. Super Pole and Dallas Dynasty sound enticing as well. Totally not joking in any way. Jay Ferguson. And that is in reference to the uh, latest promo that I put out. Uh, starting at the beginning of the year, I put out a new promo where I talk to uh, the strange disembodied voice in my head, and we had a little conversation about where the podcast was going. And he decided that I should probably do a US1 podcast. Hmm, I'm thinking not. But uh, thanks, Jay, for making me think about the US-1 podcast. I'll have to give that some reasoned thought. Who knows? Our next letter is from friend of the show, Scott Davis, who writes in saying, Hey, Sean, I just reread the Mosaic issues, 14 through 17, and it was very powerful. I actually read these issues last year, along with the 18 issues of Mosaic, when Dan from the Lanterncast did a solo podcast on these issues. His podcast actually got me interested in going back and reading the entire run, starting with number one, which which is actually how I found your podcast. Cool, I'm glad that the Lantern cast, which I've heard is a really good episode, and the reason that I'm not going to be covering the the Mosaic stories is because the Lantern cast did a great job in covering those over on their side. So if you want to get more about the um, Jon Stewart storyline and Mosaic, definitely go check out the Lantern Cast podcast. Scott continues, I was looking for a podcast that was going to cover these issues that was that I was going to read. Funny how that works. 
just some quick thoughts on these issues. The death scenes of the teenagers in issue 14 was brutal. I was starting to get used to death scenes being off-panel, and this one really sticks out and will be hard to forget. If you don't remember, this is where the strange aliens uh, that were the basically the enemies in the Mosaic storyline in Green Lantern basically took these kids who were trying to communicate with them and fired a laser at them and basically incinerated them. It happened on panel, and it really gave you an idea that these sort of hive-mind aliens were not to be trifled with. Um, Scott continues, Gerard Jones does a good job setting up his Mosaic series with these issues, but they're very heavy, and his Mosaic series is absolutely bizarre. It's completely different than his writing for his regular Geo run. Another scene that really sticks out it is the death of the male parent in issue 17. That was pretty tough to take, even if the dad was a diamond alien. Yeah, this was another part in the uh, storyline where, uh, during the battle, one of the aliens that Chaselon is like, the sort of diamond uh, Green Lantern, gets uh, blown apart, and one of his children is there, and he witnesses it, and the, all the child is saying is, male parent? Male parent? Asking for his dead father. It's, you know, for... Alien creatures, in fact, alien creatures that are so alien, they're hard to relate to. This scene in the book was just really moving and really uh, dramatic, and something that you probably won't see in modern comics. It's it's the whole thing about the difference between between being adult and being mature. Here in this comic, in this case, they were being mature. In modern comics, they're being adult, and by being adult, I mean spraying blood around and showing viscera and organs and rapiness and horribleness. You know what I mean. Uh, Scott continues on. Question. Is there any finality to the Mosaic Cities? Dan from the Lantern cast said it never really wrapped up and subsequent writers never really addressed it. Do you know if there's anything that referenced what happened to it? And I wrote back to Scott saying, no, there's never really mention of whether or not the cities got transferred back to their own planets or not. Um, I linked him to the site, or to an interview with Gerard Jones, who talked about uh, his uh, dealings with uh, Green Lantern and Mosaic and the Guy Gardner storyline. So, that's the best I can do, yeah. I don't know whether or not the uh, planets, or the Mosaic cities were ever even referenced again. It's probably like the New Guardians, except with a lot less suckage. Our next letter is about episode 49, and it's from the awesome podcaster Mr. Michael Bradley, who's hosting Green Lantern's Light, he hosts the uh, Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and he also runs the blog Siegel and Schuster uh, Mythmakers. Excellent site about uh, the creators of Superman, who also created a lot more work than just Superman. But when you create Superman, that's pretty much what people will know you for. But Michael writes in, Johnny Cash instead of Beyonce? Good call, friend. Good call. Because, yes, there would have been mocking. Most likely led from yours truly for for any non-ironic inclusion of Beyonce. But the man in black? If anyone ever wants to mock you for that, I will fight them. I'll most likely lose, mind you, but I'll fight them. Because I am a man who would fight for your honor. I'll be the hero you're dreaming of. You know, I can't even keep that. Even I have standards. But still, I'll fight them. Even though Ring of Fire has lost some of its shine since they started using it to sell hemorrhoids cream. Ugh, poor Johnny Cash. Still, good show, and early congratulations on updating episode 50, Michael. Thanks, Michael. I really appreciate your congratulations. I'm glad that uh, the show's been going on this long, and I'm glad that you're still a listener. Um, Michael Bradley puts together some amazing podcasts in uh, Thrilling Adventures of Superman and Green Lantern's Light, 
and knowing how much raining he has to do with J. David Weeder and Jeffrey Taylor over there on Green Lantern's Light, the fact that they get an awesome podcast that they do is just a testimony to him being able to edit some of the things Jeffrey says out. It's awesome. But thanks again for writing in, Michael. I appreciate it. And our final email this time out is another one from Scott Davis, who writes in saying, Aaron Cooter draws Nort in New Guardians number 16 out today. And Scott writes in to tell me, Sean, I just had a discussion on Twitter with Aaron Cooter, exported in the attached word document. He actually drew Nort in the New Guardians issue that came out today. I'm going to head over to the comic shop as soon as possible to check it out, Scott. And he's given me this, and it's an image of Nort being drawn in the New Guardians. And essentially, what happened, Jeff Johns had said pretty much, Nort is pretty much lost in the New 52. But Aaron Cooter drew drew him in the uh, New Guardians issue, and that is awesome. I'm glad that Nort is still around. The Green Lantern Corps needs a bit of fun, and Nort is always there to provide that. So thanks for letting me know about this, Scott. I may actually have to go uh, check out this issue of uh, Green Lantern. Well, actually, Green Lantern New Guardians. So it's the Kyle run. I should enjoy it. But that does it for email. Thanks, everyone, for being so patient with me getting with to these emails. And thanks again for writing in. I love it when you guys write in. It, it really validates what I'm doing here, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thanks again. But thanks out of the way. Let's go ahead and try and get through, with my horrible raspy voice, this issue of Green Lantern number 52. Green Lantern number 52 was cover dated June 1994 with a release date on March 22, 1994. The cover price was $1.50 US, $2 Canada, and 70p UK. Title was Breaking In. Writer was Moran Mars, pencils were Steve Carr, Jamal Ingle, not Ingle, Eagle, and Daryl Banks. Inker was Romeo Tangal, colorist Steve Matson, letterer Albert Guzman, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Flying through the sky, the newest Green Lantern angrily dives towards his foe, who is threatening to shoot him. Luckily for Kyle, the shooting is being done by Kyle's super-hot girlfriend Alex DeWitt, and the weapon of choice is actually a camera. It seems that Alex wants to up Kyle's Q rating in the superhero community, as well as get an exclusive gig as the photographer for the new Green Lantern. However, all Kyle wants to do is test out the ring's powers. He's found that flying is pretty easy, as all he has to do is think about it. Alex suggests he try something a bit more complex, and Kyle responds with a ring-generated construct of Alex, in a slutty swimsuit and high heels. One smack to the back of the head later, and Kyle decides to go the weapons route, and creates an SEA-accurate sword and shield. Alex says it'll work, so long as he decides to take on the Sheriff of Nottingham, and suggests something bigger. Kyle obliges and rings up to phase plasma rifle in the 40-watt range, which he demonstrates on the nearby sand dune. Reveling in his awesomeness, Kyle says that anyone would have to be crazy to mess with him. Cut to the slab, where someone who is a bit crazy, as well as a bit super-hired alien, is tearing through the prison security. The yellow-skinned Mongol decides to do the opposite of what Susan Powder would ask you to do. And releases all the supervillains from their cells. On his way to escape and seek revenge on Superman and Green Lantern, Mongo pops the head of a kund prisoner and throws a guard into a brick wall. The jaundiced giant takes a jetpack from the dead guard and heads towards LA, where he plans to kill Green Lantern. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., the bomb from issue 50 is picked up by a shadowy government organization. Saying that he wants to do his patriotic duty, Joshua Turner tells the story of what he saw on the alley on that night, as well as the strange green glowing piece of metal that was left there. The shadowy government official takes the object, as it is a matter of national security. Joshua willingly hands it over, but asks for some kind of a reward. The SGO says the government will take care of everything, as Joshua is led outside and brutally stabbed to death while the SGO stares at the green, glowing object. Back on the beach, Kyle is impressing Alex by creating ring construct rice burner, 
when Alex says that Kyle ought to call it a day. Kyle reluctantly agrees and is prepared to stop ring slinging until he hears a strange sound. Looking skyward, Kyle sees an object barreling towards him, so he pushes Alex out of harm's way, just in time to get stomped into the sand by Mongol. The two start up a little Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, with a horrified Alex looking on. Kyle lands a few good blows, but it isn't enough, and on the final panel we see Mongol standing over the couple, proclaiming that he is the killer of Green Lantern, for there is no one to save him. Like Michael Bailey mentioned in the last episode, if you're going to go up against a supervillain in your first issue or so, you might as well make it a big one. Granted, Ohm really wasn't the uh, best supervillain to go up, but it was something just test the waters. Um, Mongol is on an entirely different level, and it's nice to see that we're not only going to see Kyle get tried in this way and taking on a major supervillain, but it's also carrying on the continuity from the earlier Green Lantern issue where Hal had to take on Mongol. So it's still keeping with the whole continuity of the storyline, even though it's going on its, on, on its new path. I'm going to go ahead and start with notes, uh, starting with the cover. Uh, if you didn't know, um, on the cover it says, this is the new Green Lantern. Hey everyone, you know, make sure this new Green Lantern, even though you can't tell by the fact that he's got a completely different costume and mask and look, it's the new Green Lantern. Just pointing it out to you. And secondly, Mongol looks really good on the cover here, but throughout the issue, his look gets a bit wonky. Size difference, uh, his, his head looks sometimes much smaller than his body should. I think it's probably because they used, like, three pencilers in the issue to get the issue out. So the lack of cohesiveness through the artist throughout the issue kind of diminishes the artwork from previous issues. On page three, we get Kyle posing for Alex taking some pictures of him, and he grumbles to himself that he bets that Superman doesn't have to put up with this. Yeah, Superman may not have to put up with this, Kyle, but also Superman doesn't act like a giant douche whenever he's having someone take pictures of him, so maybe you need to work on that a bit. Page four, panel three. Kyle says here, that all he has to do to fly is to think about it, much like he imagined it would be like when he was a kid. So here we're starting to get the seeds sown that Kyle's imagination is going to be what takes him through as being a Green Lantern. His imagination is going to be sort of key to the way he creates his constructs and the way he portrays himself as a Green Lantern. Page 5, panel 5. I hate to say this, but Kyle's construct of Alex in the swimsuit is sadly far more practical than a Reese's get up in the last Guy Gardner issue. Not that it's any less demeaning towards women, but at least it's somewhat more practical. Then on page 6, panel 1, Kyle kind of gets his comeuppance for making a uh, slutty image of Alex with the ring. Now, We discussed this in the last episode, or Thomas brought this up, that we were wondering if Alex was just created as a character to kind of, well, as an impetus for Kyle to move on. That Alex really wasn't a character that you were supposed to get involved in. And unfortunately, I can kind of see that, because over the course of these past couple of issues, she hasn't been really compassionate, she hasn't been really caring, She's just been kind of needling Kyle all the way. Um, We'll get images of her later, and we'll get the storylines of her later being a lot more caring and a lot more affectionate to Kyle, but right now she's just kind of the nagging girlfriend. And it does lend credence to the idea that Alex may have just been here as sort of a placeholder for the next female in Kyle's life. Then on the same page, panel three, we get... Uh, Kyle saying, oh, what am I supposed to do? Make a giant boxing glove? To which Alex replies, no, definitely not a giant boxing glove. Okay, we get it. 
the whole boxing glove thing and the scissors construct are, whoa, they're way outdated and they're so old and we need something hip and cool. I understand they're trying to get away from the old-time Green Lantern, but making fun of it just sounds kind of... It's sour grapes. Page 7, panel 6. Kyle, after he uses the ring to create this giant laser cannon or whatever, you know, says anyone would be nuts to have to go up against him. And all I can think is, you know, watch that pride, Kyle. That will come back eventually to bite you. Moving on to page 9. Um... They're really playing up this character, um, Major Force, I guess it is. That's who Thomas said it was in the last issue. I mean, he's front and center in the uh, jailbreak here, so... I wonder what this Major Force character is going to do. No idea. Pages 10 and 11, we get another scene of off-panel violence, where Mongol essentially punches uh, Akun's head off. Not just punches him but punches his head off, because in the next panel over here, we see the body with just sort of a splotch where his head was supposed to be. So, a bit of violence without being overly gory. I'm wondering if this was Comics Code approved, or if this was Comics Code telling him what they could do, or whether or not they just decided to go with this. Either way, a lot better than the violence they do in modern comics. Page 12, panel 2, we get an image of Superman fighting a couple of white-skinned or white-armored robots or something. I've I've only got to assume this was something that was going on in the Superman titles at the time. Um, sorry, the Superman titles at the time. So maybe uh, anyone who has some knowledge of the Superman titles can write in and tell me what's going on here. Page 14, panel 2, I'm... Really glad that Washington can just spend money willy-nilly on flying bums from L.A. to D.C. just to interrogate them about drunken hallucinations. I'm so glad that my tax dollars pay for that. Then, of course, on page 15, panel 2, we get the uh, weird glowing green thing that was found where a green lantern was. Hmm. A weird glowing green thing that's a metal object came uh, forth where a Green Lantern uh, originated. I wonder what it could be. Then on page 16, panel 5, okay, I can think this shadowy government organization has brought this guy to Washington, D.C. because he has some knowledge of this weird alien device. I can see them wanting to quietly get rid of him. However, I cannot see them deciding to take him outside of the office and murder him with a knife. That is the image here. Some guy is stabbing this bum with a knife right outside this government office. <sighs> was this like the Bush administration? No, this was the no, this was the Clinton administration at the time. Hmm. Said something maybe. Page 18. Now, just a few pages ago, Kyle was complaining that the whole boxing glove things was so outdated. But when Alex is in trouble, what does he get rid of Alex with? Does he swoop her up in a chair and carry her off to somewhere? Does he ring her up in a bubble and protect her? Nope. Pushes her away with a giant hand construct. So, let's hear it for sticking to your guns, so to speak. Page 20, panel 4, we get an image of Kyle blasting Mongo in the chest with a beam from the ring. So, eventually either something is going on with the ring, because in issue 46, Hal said he couldn't attack Mongo with the ring, simply because his body was yellow and that would have negated it. So, we're getting an idea that something might be going on here that makes Kyle's ring a bit different from Hal's. Then finally, on page 22, we get the image of Mongol getting ready to uh, strangle, well, actually crush Kyle and maybe murder Alex. And it's kind of weird. This is where the artwork gets a bit wonky. His head on his body looks just really out of proportion. Plus, he doesn't look much bigger than the characters. When I think of Mongol, I think of this huge hulking thing. And right here, he doesn't really look, aside from 
more muscular than the other characters, much taller than them. So just a bit of wonky artwork on the part of the creators here. Like I said, I think I'd attribute it to the fact that we've got three pencilers doing the story this time rather than just Daryl Banks. But that does it for the Green Lantern issue. I'm going to plug a couple of promos in here, go get something to drink and rest my voice, and then come back with an episode, issue sode of Guy Gardner Warrior. Hey, kids, go! Bugger off, kid, I'm talking here. Hey, folks, it's your old pal Murray Clawhammer here. And boy, do I have some good news for you! The Hey Kids Comics Podcast is moving! As of January 1st, you can find your Hey Kids Comics podcast on the Two True Freaks feed. That's at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Libsyn spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. I love this f***ing show. It's like drinking Earl Grey tea next to the Thames River and having scones instead of sitting in my mom's basement and drinking Dr. Pepper and, and eating Little Debbie snack cakes. Anywho, thanks to some sketchily acquired photographs, Two True Freaks and Demanza Corp anticipate a long and fruitful relationship with Hey Kids Comics. And remember, come New Year's 2013, you can find your Hey Kids Comics at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. L-I-B-S-Y-N! They're British! This offer is void in the event of Mayan prophecy being accurate. Ready to form Voltron! This is a job for Superman! Power Rangers! Right away, Michael. Autobots, transform! By the power of Grayskull! For the honors of Grayskull! Hello. I'm the Doctor. Charlie's Geek Cast. Coming January 1st, 2013 to www.charliesgeekcast.com Com. And we're back. So before my voice goes completely, let's go ahead and get into our coverage of Guy Gardner Warrior number 21, which was cover dated June 1994 with a release date of May 3rd, 1994. Cover price was $1.50 US, 2 bucks Canada, and 70p UK. Title was Emerald Fallout Part 4, Fist Forward, Face Down. The writer was Bo Smith, penciler was Mitch Bird, inker was Dan Davis, colorist was Stuart Shaffitz, letterer was Albert Guzman, editor was Eddie Braganza. Guy Gardner is dead, having been impaled on a ring construct spike, created by a not-yet-you-know-who, Hal Jordan. Well, that was a quick read. Who wants lunch? What? Wait, that's not it? There's more? Okay... Hal Jordan walks to the heroes who came to investigate the problems on Oa and creates an image of himself that roughs up former love Aresia. Before something lurid happens due to Aresia's overly skimpy costume, Hal is called out by the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott, who ring-blasts the former hero into the Owen soil. This doesn't work out so well for the Elder Lantern, as Hal blasts him with the might of the entirety of the Emerald Energy. Dragging Alan and Aresia's bodies away, Hal proclaims that none of them should have come here, as he transports them all back to Earth. Unfortunately, Hal forgot about one Guy Gardner, who seems as not quite dead yet as he tackles his former corpsman from behind. Smashing his head into a nearby asteroid, Guy denounces Hal, calling him a twisted, diseased maniac. Hal recovers and throws the insult back at Guy, saying that if Guy can't see what he's doing is right, he will have to stop him permanently. Guy calls Hal a murdering psycho, and says the more power that he uses, the more juiced Guy's ring gets. Hal takes advantage of that fact and crushes Guy's ring, flinging him back onto the surface of Oa. His power slipping away, Guy takes a final blow to the back of his head from Jordan, who 
give Sakai a message. I don't want to harm them, but I will get the power I need. I will make everything right again. And with that, Hal beams a broken Guy Gardner back to Earth as he makes his plans for future conquests. like issue 51 before it, as epic of an issue that this should have been, it really didn't quite make it. It's not that the story is bad, or that the artwork is bad, it's just a big fight, which the outcome from the beginning was going to be pretty evident. In Green Lantern 25, if Guy had just used the little brains, maybe he would have had a chance to win that fight, as both the combatants were on equal footing. Here, Guy is so much outclassed by Hal that it doesn't seem even worth the read. I mean, maybe this is due to me knowing where all of this will go for Hal, and I'm projecting the power level that Hal has versus Guy and seeing that there really is no match. But even with that knowledge, it it is nice to see that Guy isn't willing to give up, no matter what the cost. And believe you me, there is a cost to Guy in this issue. It's not just him losing the ring. He gets hurt in this issue. And with that, let's move on to notes. We'll go ahead and move on to the cover, which screams the 90s. Speaking of screaming, we've got both the characters of Hal and Guy on the cover screaming at each other as well. But of course, in space, no one can hear you scream. Plus, we get the first image of Hal in his true villain costume, replete with the incredibly 90s, incredibly Spawn-like cape. In fact, I think this is the first time that we'll see an image of Hal with the cape, because in the uh, Green Lantern issue number 50, where he left, he didn't have the cape, and even in the uh, Guy Gardner issue number 20, he uh, when he appeared from the soil, he didn't have the cape on either. So this is the first time the cape is drawn, and so I attribute that stylistic detail to Hal's costume to Mitch Bird and Dan Davis here. Moving into the book, on page one, like the issue number 75 of Superman, Superman's death, um, all the panels of this book are either single or double page splashes. Now, that'd be kind of neat, and I think they might be either homaging or aping Superman number 75, but unfortunately, the art isn't quite as good, so it it fails in that aspect. Davis, and, you know, like I said before, Davis and Bird really do some great artwork in the book, but here they're just sort of, well, I don't think they've come into their own on the title. The artwork is not up to the standards that I expect from these guys. However, like I said on the uh, front cover, Hal does have his cape, and I think Spawn may be looking for one, because it looks like Hal just stole it and sort of did a green dye job on it. Pages 2 and 3, this is kind of a creepy panel. Now, the fact that Aresia was in her Hootie McBoobleage costume in the past issue, and she still is, we get an image of Hal, well ring construct Hal, because obviously Hal and his caped wonder outfit are in the background here, and it looks like the ring construct of Hal might be trying to do something salacious with Aresia. He's uh, holding her in an uncomfortable manner and pressing her against himself. It, it looks like ring construct Hal may be trying to force himself on her, and that's kind of disturbing. It makes me think that Hal has crossed the line. Page 5. I think Alan Scott had gone from the Green Lantern persona to Sentinel now, and he was getting his energy from the Starheart rather than from the Green Lantern ring and the Lantern. So it makes sense because usually you would see him 
balling his fist up to uh, make the construct with the ring. But this time he's just beaming the energy from his hand, and he's having the, the uh, ring construct hand come out of the Owen soil and pound an owl. It's a really nice um, image here, plus um, there's some good capage going on from from Alan as well. He's uh, obviously gone to the same haberdasher that uh, Hal did for his cape, so there you go. Pages 6 and 7, I have to think that a young Michael Bay probably used this as a masturbatory aid when he was young, because it's essentially just a giant explosion, and God knows that Michael Bay loves explosions, so there you go. Page 8, we get uh, Hal carrying the slumping Aresia in his hand, and we get in a gratuitous butt shot. Surprising that with Aresia's costume, we're not seeing a bit more, so thank goodness that tiny strip of fabric, you know, is covering her alien naughty bits. Page 9, we see Hal beaming all the heroes home, and we've got Wonder Woman, Captain Adam, Ray, Martian Manhunter, looks like uh, Dark Star, Aresia, and Alan, so he's got all of them anyway. However, if we wanted to think of it, and he truly is being evil, he might just be beaming him off into the nearest star to burn up, so you never know what's going on with Hal. But they do at least try and give him a small amount of sympathy. You think that he might actually be being, beaming them home. Pages 13 and 14, we get some really great superhero dialogue from Guy here, and I want to read it to you. As Guy slams Hal into the side of this asteroid, he goes, Eat rock, you twisted, diseased maniac. Always trying to be the Boy Scout. Always trying to do what others think is the right thing. It's guys like you that always end up with ulcers or in a tower with a gun going postal. Well, Hal, old buddy, Guy Gardner ain't got no ulcers. I like it that Guy here is admitting that him being true to himself, warts and all, is what makes him a better hero than Hal, who's always felt the need to unquestioningly do the right thing. Whether you believe that that's what makes Guy a hero or not is up to you, but that's how I like to look at it. Page 16, we got another great 90s trope in shoulder pads. Holy cow, do we have shoulder pads are huge. Plus, we also get how trying to bargain with Guy, and let me read some of your dialogue. Isn't that what people called you? And he's talking about the twisted, diseased maniac. How continues, I put an end to Sinestro. You're wearing his old ring isn't going to stop me. You came here to stop me, Guy? Why? I don't understand. What I don't understand is why. You lived in Coast City, too. You knew the people there. You have to believe that me wanting to bring them back is right. Hal's trying to bargain. It it shows that Hal's stuck in this one sort of, and I hate to get all Oprah, this one stage of grief that he can't bring himself out of. He's so consumed by his desire to bring back Coast City, and the fact that he's been denied that is just driving him mad. It's turning him into, it's turning him into a villain, and it's something that I can see fans of Hal just not jiving with at all. Page 18. Here is another example of where the artwork's a bit off. Guy's face just really looks elongated here. It's not the best image of Guy, and unfortunately, Bird and Davis will get better, but their rendering of Guy is vastly different from the way Staten drew him, especially with the haircut and everything, and I think they're just kind of feeling their way right now, because this doesn't look like a good image of Guy. Page 20. Now, I'm looking at this image, and let me sort of describe it. It's Hal with his... He's hit Guy with his right hand, and his right hand is swung back behind him. His legs are spread apart almost in a split as he's floating in the air, and his cape's billowing off to one side as he smacks a Guy down into the soil of Oa. 
it reminds me of something, and I want to say something very Kirby or Fantastic Four or very Thor-like, but it looks like they're trying to ape an image from a comic. and It's an iconic image, but I just can't focus on what it might be. If anyone has seen this image and knows what it uh, derives from or what they're paying homage to, write in and let me know, because I'd love to hear it. Because it does sort of smack of a sort of Kirby Thor type image, or maybe a Doctor Doom thing. I don't know. Then on page 21, as Guy's armor is dissipating because his ring's been destroyed and the power is going, Hal does the ultimate and punches him in the back of the head, popping his left eye out. And you Again, you really can't see it, but his left eye is sort of blacked out, and you hear him scream. So Hal's just basically brutally beaten guy to the fact that he's probably going to be in a coma again because you get a hit to the head that pops your eye out, you're going to be pretty messed up. Then, of course, on page 22, we get Guy in his broken, battered form, being beamed back to Earth by Spawn. Oh, sorry. It's Hal. The cape just threw me off. Sorry. But that does it for my notes for Guy Gardner. Let's go ahead and see if they've got some interesting ads. Maybe some ads for Chloroseptic in the book. On the inside front cover, they've got the image of the new Batman, the very sort of circular one. And it looks like it's it looks like the bat signal is sort of cracking and the title of it is The End is Near, and I'm pretty certain this is the final chapter of the Night's Fall uh, trilogy, Night's End, where uh, Azriel or Azbats, is finally losing it, and the uh, members of the Bat team come back to take him down. So Andrew Leyland and Michael Leyland cover this over at Hey Kids Comics, and you can actually probably catch it if they're doing the uh, old postings of the show over at Two True Freaks. Check it out. It was definitely a great bunch of episodes. A few pages in, we get Six Flags, Number 2, and Gaining. When you're America's number two theme park company, you have to do things that the number one does, and a lot more. And I don't know if it's the best idea of Six Flags to hail itself as number two. If you know what I'm saying. I'm being juvenile. The next page is an Entertainment This Month com column with all the uh, comics that they think are hot, and they've got their top ten picks of the month, which are Batman Punisher number one, DC Master Series cards, uh, Judge Dredd number one, DC or Marvel Universe Series 1's cards, the uh, Marvel 1994 swimsuit special, <laughs> Punisher Archie number one, did that run more than one issue? It's got John, John Busema art, so there you go. The uh, Superman, Lois, and Clark trade, which is the uh, collection of the best Lois and Clark stories by John Byrne, Jerry Ordway, and more. The Valiant Files series box. Violator, number one and two, which I guess is Spawn's nemesis. And the Wolverine, Typhoid, Mary trade. So, top ten in the 90s, you've got Wolverine, Punisher, and a swimsuit issue. There you go. A few more pages in, you get the toughest person in Gotham may not be Batman. And it's an ad for the Chuck Dixon and Michael Netzler. Netzler? Sorry, Michael Netzer book of The Huntress. It's a four-issue miniseries that they did. Um, I'm not certain if I read this. Um, anything Chuck Dixon does, however, I would think would be just completely awesome. So it was probably a good thing to go pick up. Then the next page, they get over the city of Metropolis, streaks the Man of Steel at breathtaking speed. And it's for the Superman Archives number 4, or volume 4, which continues the series featuring the Golden Age adventures of the Man of Steel, with a a special introduction by Leonard Maltin. So, Leonard Maltin's behind it, you know it's got to be quality. Because he gave Laser Blast two and a half stars. Laser Blast. And a ways on into the book, oddly, right across from the big shoulder pads image of uh, Hal Jordan, we get the ridiculous Cylon image of Azbats. 
saying the end is here. And Batman number 509, 510, Shadow of the Bat 2930, Detective Comets 676 and 677, Robin 89 and Catwoman 12 and 13, The Story of Night's End, where we're finally going to put to rest the ridiculous claws of death, <laughs> Batman. Oh, it was a good story, but boy, it's a ridiculous costume. Thank you, 1990s. Next page is the Comic Buyer's Guide 1993 Fan Awards, which you could cut out and send to your local comic book shop, and or I guess not comic book shop, but you mail into the Comic Buyer's Guide, and they would uh, tally them up and figure out who their favorite editor, writer, penciler, inker, colorist, painter, letterer, Cover artist, comic book story, comic book, limited series, graphic novel, uh, reprint, favorite character, and favorite publication was. So, I tried looking on the internet for who won these things and never really got a definitive answer. So, it was the 90s, I'm certain it was Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and Todd McFarlane and who knows who else. The DC House ad says exciting stories, great savings, and the convenience of home delivery. And the uh, images they've got on there are some of their big characters at the time, especially the uh, new Green Lantern of Kyle Rayner, the new Superboy, and, uh, well, like a Superboy that he didn't have the name yet, and the return of Superman, who seems to be punching a giant skeleton. That's awesome. The next page is the DC Universe page, and it's from the DC High 1994 yearbook, where we get listings of the sort of newer characters in the DC Universe, including Damage, which is cool, The Ray, which is also cool, Anima, which isn't cool in any way, shape, or form, Superboy, who is super cool, and Robin, who is perhaps the coolest of all. Of course, it says, good luck to you. Great kids and all of your ongoing monthly comics from Principal Carlin, who, disturbingly enough, is drawn like a devil. So, it gives information on all those characters, including <sighs> Anima. Whatever. The Guy Talk page has been hijacked by General Glory, so the uh, comments aren't exactly as mean-spirited as they tend to be in previous issues. But... There you have it. Uh, we do, however, get a nice image for not the next issue of Guy Gardner, but the uh, issue prior to that, number 23, which has Guy Gardner in a very Indiana Jones-type pose, holding a uh, skull with some bubbling fluid coming out of it. Well, some tiger thing pops up on his right side, and three uh, very chesty Amazon warriors, in fact, one with a uh, Guy Gardner bowl cut stand in front of him. So I guess we're seeing where the direction of the story is going to go, but unfortunately it's only going to go there for a couple of issues, which is sad to me. The uh, back inside cover has one man, two worlds, and the end of all that's is. It's Worlds Collide, the DC milestone crossover event, starting in May. And it was basically the uh, Milestone universe, which was uh, the one that um, what Damage and uh, Static Shock came out of, uh, dealing with uh, a lot of the Superman titles, it looks like. Um, like I said, there were some good uh, there were some good writers, especially Dwayne McDuffie and um, Jimmy Palmiotti, who came out of the uh, Milestone universe. So this could have been a good thing. Unfortunately, I really have no knowledge of it. On the back outside cover, we get Bring Home the Bat. Now on video, Gotham City's savior the way he was meant to be. And I can't agree with him more. This is for the uh, video version of Batman, The Mask of the Phantasm, which, in many people's humble opinion, and in mine as well, is perhaps the best Batman movie out there. A lot of people claim The Dark Knight is the best one. No, this one gets Batman as a character down picture perfect. Wonderful movie. If you've never seen Mass of the Phantasm, find it wherever you can. I just checked and sadly it's not on Netflix Instant Watch, but it is available for rental from Netflix. So if you've never seen it, definitely go out and find it. 
But that does it for the issue, that does it for the episodes, and probably does it for my voice as well. I'm going to go get something cool to drink, or maybe drink some hot tea with lemon, and hopefully in the next time that I'll come back, I'll be able to give you a better, more vocally pleasing synopsis of Greenlander number 53 and Guy Gardner number 22. But until then, I hope you guys have a good weekend, and uh, we will catch you next time out here at Just One of the Guys. See you later. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Tempted by the band Squeeze, which you can find on their album, The Best of Squeeze, obviously. If you want to purchase this album, I suggest you go to the Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.libson.com, click the Amazon banner at the top of the page, where you'll be directed to Amazon.com, where you can buy the CD, download the MP3, or download the entire album in MP3 form. If you're ever going to Amazon.com for any shopping experience, please make sure that you go to the Two True Freaks website, as a small amount of your money that you spend at Amazon.com will make it back into the coffers of the Two True Freaks, making sure that quality podcasts stay on the air for you to listen to. I wonder if Amazon.com sells cough lozenges.